Hi, Dave Emery here. This is for the record program number 1245. How many lies before you belong to the lies, part 18. This is being recorded on May 18th of the year 2022. Very quickly before we get into the main body of the program, four links. These are at the top of each written for the record description on the SpitfireList.com website and at the top of each food for thought post at the upper left hand corner of the front page of the SpitfireList.com website. The first of those links will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts that are being made of this program by Sister Station WFMU. So if podcasts are the best way for you to consume the program, and in the year of our Lord 2022, that is increasingly the case, then again, Sister Station WFMU is podcasting for the record. Another link will enable you to obtain the 32 gigabyte flash drive with all of my life's work, basically everything on the SpitfireList.com website. Uh, available for a very nominal tax-deductible amount. So if you itemize your uh, deductions, then you can uh, do so with your very nominal fee paid for the flash drive. I get no money whatsoever from that. And increasingly, um, I, I, I get increasingly more pessimistic. I think we are <laughs> basically doomed, and I do think that... Uh, uh, listeners have an obligation to their descendants and to uh, the heirs to our civilization to preserve a record of what has happened. And I can think of no better way to do that than the, 40, the 32 gigabyte flash drive. Again, with roughly all of my 43 years work of recorded and written information available, plus an old library of very important, a library of old anti-fascist books on easy-to-download PDF files. Uh, those are also on the flash drive. Yet another link will enable you to subscribe to the comments, most of which are made by our brilliant contributing editor Parafractal, sometimes by other intelligent listeners. And the last link will give you access to the Patreon.com site that I have begun that is increasingly taking shape. We're doing uh, the software to provide transcriptions was not sufficiently uh, accurate, so we've scrapped that, and instead of the written transcriptions of three weekly one-hour talks, uh, what we're doing is offering the three weekly talks plus a bi-weekly Zoom Q&A session, which will be commencing presently, and I'm also going to be writing some real articles for the website, so uh, you will have access to those. The Patreon site is very much a work in progress. It is uh, progressing fairly well. I've just completed a four-part, a four-one-hour series about the COVID op, and I think that it will provide listeners a fairly comprehensive and yet much more compact, much less pedantic, 
uh, format in which to assimilate that very important information. So again, the Patreon link, uh, which increasingly is going to become necessary along with the Parafractal and other comments to cover what is necessary to cover because there is just too much going on for me to cover in one one-hour program per week. I'm going to continue to do the one one-hour broadcasts plus the written description. Now we're going to jump right in where we left off last time with some overlap with the material from the for the record 1244. This is from a very important analysis of the military situation in Ukraine. It is by Jacques Bow, B-A-U-D, a former Swiss intelligence officer. It's called The Military Situation in Ukraine from April 1st of 2022. We also are going to have another update from April 11th of 2022. Uh, as I stated in the last program, I would give a caveat about Postal, which has a lot of information that they promote that I would view with a jaundiced eye. So I would basically uh, give an, an emphatic caveat about the Postal with a capital E and the capital C. At the same time as uh, issuing that emphatic caveat, to give credit where credit is due, uh, if it weren't for the Postal, we wouldn't know about this. And uh, so they deserve you know, the, the, the enormous caveat and thumbs down. Notwithstanding, on this, they deserve two thumbs up. And we, or we owe them a lot of credit for putting this information out there. Now, Jacques Beau, who is he and what are his qualifications? Uh, more of these will be presented in an interview that the Postal did with Jacques Beau on May 1st. That, however, is a couple of weeks down the line. The bio presented here, Jacques Beau, B-A-U-B, is a former colonel of the general staff, ex-member of the Swiss Strategic Intelligence, and a specialist on Eastern countries. By the way, this is all translated from the French, so if some of the verbiage, if some of the syntax is somewhat clumsy, that is why. Continuing, Beau was trained in the American and British intelligence services. He has served as policy chief for United Nations peace operations, as a UN expert on rule of law and security institutions. He designed and led the first multidimensional UN intelligence unit in the Sudan. He has worked for the African Union and was for five years responsible for the fight at NATO against the proliferation of small arms. He was involved in discussions with the highest Russian military and intelligence officials just after the fall of the USSR. Within NATO, he followed the 2014 Ukrainian crisis and later participated in programs to assist the Ukraine. He is the author of several books on intelligence, war, and terrorism, and uh, has a series of books that have been published. More about uh, Jacques Beau in a future program. Suffice it to say that his expertise is firsthand, and he was involved with uh, training the Ukrainian military, was deeply involved with the situation there, and again, as we are going to see, has very much taken issue with the policy of a mass distribution of shoulder arms to urban populations in Ukraine. As he puts it, uh, that turns force 
in the violence. And we're going to reflect against that. We're going to reflect about that against the background of uh, the gentleman in Buffalo who allegedly shot up all those people. That, however, later in the program. Continuing with the, and overlapping with our last program, the section demilitarization, talking about the Russian offensive in Ukraine. The Russian offensive was carried out in a very classic manner, initially as the Israelis had done in 1967 with the destruction on the ground of the Air Force in the very first hours. Then we witnessed a simultaneous progression along several axes according to the principle of flowing water, advance everywhere where resistance was weak, and leave the cities very demanding in terms of troops for later. In the north, the Chernobyl power plant was occupied immediately to prevent acts of sabotage. The images of Ukrainian and Russian soldiers guarding the plant together are, of course, not shown in Western media. The idea that Russia is trying to take over Kiev, the capital, to eliminate Zelensky, comes typically from the West. That is what they did in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, and what they wanted to do in Syria with the help of the Islamic State. But Vladimir Putin never intended to shoot or topple Zelensky. Instead, Russia seeks to keep him in power by pushing him to negotiate by surrounding Kiev. Up till now, he refused to implement the Minsk agreements. But now, the Russians want to obtain the neutrality of the Ukraine. This, again, was six weeks ago. Many Western commentators were surprised that the Russians continued to seek a negotiated solution while conducting military operations. The explanation lies in the Russian strategic outlook since the Soviet era. For the West, war begins when politics ends. However, the Russian approach follows a Klausnitsian inspiration. War is the continuity of politics, and one can move fluidly from one to the other even during combat. This allows one to create pressure on the adversary and push him to negotiate. From an operational point of view, the Russian offensive was an example of its kind. In six days, the Russians seized a territory as large as the United Kingdom, with a speed of advance greater than what the Wehrmacht had achieved in 1940. The bulk of the Ukrainian army was deployed in the south of the country in preparation for a major operation against the Donbass. This is why Russian forces were able to encircle it from the beginning of March in the cauldron between Slavyansk, Kramatorsk, and Severodonetsk, with a thrust from the east through Kharkov and another from the south from Crimea. Troops from the Donetsk People's Republic and Lukansk People's Republics are complementing the Russian forces with a push from the east. At this stage, again, this was uh, May 1st, or April 1st, at this stage, Russian forces are slowly tightening the noose, but are no longer under time pressure. Their demilitarization goal is all but achieved, and the remaining Ukrainian forces no longer have an operational and strategic command structure. The, quote, slowdown, unquote, that our, quote, experts, unquote, attribute to poor logistics is only the consequence of having achieved their objectives. Russia does not want to, Russia does not seem to want to engage in an occupation of the entire Ukrainian territory. 
In fact, it seems that Russia is trying to limit its advance to the linguistic border of the country. Uh, we'll pause here. Uh, with regard to the battlefield reportage, uh, we'll perhaps present other military analyses. Um, the Russian thrust toward Kiev, and I still have uh, many questions about that, uh, it seemed to leave the flanks of that long column exposed, and they incurred significant losses in ambushes. Uh, Scott Riffer has alleged that there was a major intelligence failure and that that led to the dismissal of uh, a number of Russian intelligence operatives. Uh, that may very well be the case, but whatever happened with that column, the fact of the matter is uh, Russians are chess players uh, in Russia, chess is a national passion. In the U.S., the Kardashians are a national passion. And it appears that, by and large, uh, in the West, what Russia was doing, which was basically organizing a feint toward Kiev, which drew off large amounts of uh, Ukrainian military resources, it was just that. It was a feint. Their primary goal, which was achieved, again, was the encirclement uh, and cutting off of the vast bulk of the Ukrainian military uh, in the eastern part of the country. More about that later. Uh, this has been fundamentally misunderstood in the West. I myself didn't think Russia was about to invade Ukraine because the number of troops involved, 150,000, just isn't enough for what we think of as an invasion. Uh, it is indeed a limited military operation, and as Bo has noted, uh, that Bo again, B-A-U-D, uh, they have achieved their basic goal, which is the surrounding and, the, as we speak, the destruction of the bulk of the Ukrainian military in the east. Uh, what I wonder about in the, the, the title of this series is How Many Lies Before You Belong to the Lies. It is a quote from the 1976 autobiography Heartland by the late brilliant political comedian Mark Saul. And uh, I wonder about the Western coverage of the war. Uh, they are basically saying that Russia is incompetent militarily, which does not appear to be the case, and that they have lost, or that Ukraine is, either is winning or has a chance of winning. That does not appear to be the case. So I wonder what comes next. Are we going to see large numbers of Western combatants uh, operating weapons systems in the war? Uh, that remains to be seen. But I am wondering about the extent to which the West is going to find itself being possessed, belonging to the lies they have created. And I am terrified that this whole thing could lead to uh, something not unlike the quagmire of diplomatic and military alliances in the early part of the 20th century that led up to World War One. The difference, of course is that the combatants in World War I did not have nuclear weapons, and uh, the combatants here do. So I basically uh, 
the, the fresh fertilizer is being scared out of yours truly. And again, I would emphasize very strongly that I, I, I think listeners have an obligation to get the flash drive and to make themselves a repository for the information about just what happened. Anyway, uh, continuing overlapping with where we left off, the quote, slowdown, unquote, that our quote, experts, unquote, attribute to poor logistics is only the consequence of having achieved their objectives. Russia does not seem to want to engage in an occupation of the entire Ukrainian territory. In fact, it seems that Russia is trying to limit its advance to the linguistic border of the country. Our media speak of indiscriminate bombardments against the civilian population, especially in Kharkov, and Dantean images are broadcast in the loop. However, Gonzalo Lira, a Latin American who lives there, presents us with a calm city on March 10th and March 11th. It is true that Kharkov is a large city, and we do not see everything, but this seems to indicate that we are not in the total war that we are served continuously on our screens. As for the the Donbass republics, they have, quote, liberated, unquote, their own territories and are fighting in the city of Mariupol. The third section here, demousification. In cities like Kharkov, Mariupol, and Odessa, the defense is provided by paramilitary militias. They know that the objective of, quote, demousification, unquote, is aimed primarily at them. For an attacker in an urbanized area, civilians are a problem. This is why Russia is seeking to create humanitarian corridors to empty cities of civilians and leave only the militias to fight them more easily. Conversely, these militias seek to keep civilians in the cities in order to dissuade the Russian army from fighting there. This is why they are reluctant to implement these corridors and do everything to ensure that Russian efforts are unsuccessful. They can use the civilian population as human shields, unquote. Videos showing civilians trying to leave Mariupol and beaten up by fighters of the Azov Regiment are, of course, carefully censored here. Apparently some being, uh, apparently have been killed, according to information presented in previous programs. On Facebook, the Azov group was considered in the same category as the Islamic State and subject to the platform's, quote, policy on dangerous individuals and organizations, unquote. It was, therefore, forbidden to glorify it, and posts that were favorable to it were systematically banned. But on February 24th, Facebook changed its policy and allowed posts favorable to the militia. In the same spirit, in March, the platform authorized in the former eastern countries calls for the murder of Russian soldiers and leaders. So much for the values that inspire our leaders, as we shall see. Our media propagate a romantic image of popular resistance. It is this image that led the European Union to finance the distribution of arms to the civilian population. This is a criminal act. In my capacity as head of peacekeeping doctrine at the United Nations, I worked on the issue of civilian protection. We found that violence against civilians occurred in very specific contexts. In particular, 
when weapons are abundant and there are no command structures. The command, these command structures are the essence of armies. Their function is to channel the use of force towards an objective. By arming citizens in a haphazard manner, as is currently the case, the EU is turning them into combatants with the consequential effect of making them potential targets. Moreover, without command, without operational goals, the distribution of arms leads inevitably to suffering of scores, banditry, and actions that are more deadly than effective. War becomes a matter of emotions, and force becomes violence. This is what happened in Tawarga, Libya, from 11th to the 13th of August, 2011, where 30,000 black Africans were massacred with weapons parachuted illegally by France. By the way, the British Royal Institute of Strategic Studies does not see any added value in these arms deliveries. Moreover, by delivering arms to a country at war, one exposes oneself to being considered a belligerent. The Russian strikes of March 13, 2022, against the Mikolaev Air Base followed Russian warnings that arms shipments would be treated as hostile targets. The EU is repeating the disastrous experience of the Third Reich in the final hours of the Battle of Berlin. War must be left to the military, and when one side has lost, it must be admitted. And if there is to be resistance, it must be led and structured. But we are doing exactly the opposite. We are pushing citizens to go and fight, and at the same time, Facebook authorizes calls for the murder of Russian soldiers and leavers. So much for the values that inspire us. Some intelligence services see this irresponsible decision as a way to use the Ukrainian population as cannon fodder to fight Vladimir Putin's Russia. This kind of murderous decision should have been left to the colleagues of Ursula von der Leyen's grandfather. It would have been better to engage in negotiations and thus obtain guarantees for the civilian population than to add fuel to the fire. It is easy to be combative with the blood of others. Then the next section, the maternity hospital at Mariupol. More about this later. It is important to understand beforehand that it is not the Ukrainian army that is defending Mariupol, but the Azov militia composed of foreign mercenaries. In its March 7, 2022 summary of the situation, the Russian UN mission in New York stated that, quote, Residents report that Ukrainian armed forces expelled staff from the Mariupol City Birth Hospital No. 1 and set up a firing post inside the facility. On March 8th, the independent Russian media Limpet.ru published the testimony of civilians from Mariupol who told that the maternity hospital was taken over by the militia of the Azov Regiment and who drove out the civilian occupants by threatening them with their weapons. They confirmed the statements of the Russian ambassador a few hours earlier. The hospital in Mariupol occupies a dominant position perfectly suited for the installation of anti-tank weapons 
and for observation. On the 9th of March, Russian forces struck the building. On the 9th of March, Russian forces struck the building. According to CNN, 17 people were wounded, but the images do not show any casualties in the building, and there is no evidence that the victims mentioned are related to this strike. There is talk of children, but in reality, there is nothing. This may be true, but it may not be true. This does not prevent the leaders of the EU from seeing this as a war crime, and this allows Zelensky to call for a no-fly zone over Ukraine. In reality, we do not know exactly what happened, but the sequence of events tends to confirm that Russian forces struck a position of the Azov Regiment and that the maternity ward was then free of civilians. The problem is that the paramilitary militias that defend the cities are encouraged by the international community not to respect the customs of war. One more time. The problem is that the paramilitary militias that defend the cities are encouraged by the international community not to respect the customs of war. It seems that the Ukrainians have replayed the city of the, have replayed the scenario of the Kuwait City Maternity Hospital in 1990, which was totally staged by the firm Hill and Knowlton. One more time. It seems that our media our media, it seems that our media have replayed the scenario of the Kuwait City Maternity Hospital in 1990, which was totally staged by the firm Hill and Knowlton for $10.7 million in order to convince the United Nations Security Council to intervene in Iraq for Operation Desert, Desert Shield and Storm. Western politicians have accepted civilian strikes in the Donbass for eight years without adopting any sanctions against the Ukrainian government. We have long since entered a dynamic where Western politicians have agreed to sacrifice international law toward their goal of weakening Russia. And part three here is conclusions. As an ex-intelligence professional, the first thing that strikes me is the total absence of Western intelligence services in the representation of the situation over the past year. In Switzerland, the services have been criticized for not having provided a correct picture of the situation. In fact, it seems that throughout the Western world, intelligence services have been overwhelmed by the politicians. The problem is that it is the politicians who decide the best intelligence service in the world is useless if the decision maker does not listen. This is what happened during this crisis. That said, while some intelligence services have a very accurate and rational picture of the situation, others clearly had the same picture as that propagated by our media. In this crisis, the services of the countries of the, quote, New Europe, unquote, 
played an important role. That, by the way, uh, Eastern Europe, many of the countries served by the former anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations. And uh, before that, the Galen Org, Bulgaria, Romania, Hungary, uh, Croatia, and uh, the Baltic states. Continuing. The problem is that from experience, I have found the intelligence services of the countries of the new Europe to be extremely bad at the analytical level. Doctrinaire, they lack the intellectual and political independence necessary to assess a situation with military quality, unquote. It is better to have them as enemies than as friends. Second, it seems that in some European countries, politicians had deliberately ignored their services in order to respond ideologically to the situation. That is why this crisis has been irrational from the beginning. It should be noted that all the documents that were presented to the public during this crisis were presented by politicians based on commercial sources. Some Western politicians obviously wanted there to be a conflict. In the United States, the attack scenarios presented by Anthony Blinken to the Security Council were only the product of the imagination of a Tiger team that was working directly for him. He did exactly as Donald Rumsfeld did in 2002, who had thus bypassed, unquote, the CIA and other intelligence services that were much less assertive about Iraqi chemical weapons. The dramatic developments we are witnessing today have causes that we knew about but refused to see. One, on the strategic level, the expansion of NATO, which we have not dealt with in this paper. On the political level, the Western refusal to implement the Minsk agreements. And operationally, the continuous and repeated attacks on the civilian population of the Donbass over the past years, and a dramatic increase in late February of 2022. In other words, we can naturally deplore and condemn the Russian attack, but we, that is, the U.S., France, and the European Union in the lead, have created the conditions for a conflict to break out. We show compassion for the Ukrainian people and the two million refugees. That is fine. But if we had had a modicum of compassion for the same number of refugees from the Ukrainian populations of Donbass, massacred by their own government and who sought refuge in Russia for eight years, none of this would probably have happened. And there is a chart here, and the uh, caption says, As we can see, more than 80% of the victims in Donbass were the result of the Ukrainian army's shelling. For years, the West remained silent about the massacre of Russian-speaking Ukrainians by the government of Kiev without ever trying to bring pressure on Kiev. It is this silence that forced the Russians to act. I would add also the fact that Ukraine was uh, moving to nullify the Budapest Accords, which would have permitted them nuclear weapons, and I think also the uh, U.S. financed biological laboratory programs in Ukraine were another major reason uh, why Putin decided to act. Continuing. 
Whether the term genocide applies to the the abuses suffered by the people of Donbass is an open question. The term is generally reserved for cases of greater magnitude, Holocaust, etc., but the definition given by the Geneva Con- one more time, but the definition given by the genocide convention is probably broad enough to apply to this case. Legal scholars will understand this. Clearly, this conflict has led us into hysteria. Sanctions seem to have become the preferred tool of our foreign policies. If we had insisted that Ukraine abide by the Minsk agreements, which we had negotiated and endorsed, none of this would have happened. Vladimir Putin's condemnation is also ours. There is no point in whining afterwards. We should have acted earlier. However, neither Emmanuel Macron, as guarantor and member of the UN Security Council, nor Olaf Scholz, nor Volodymyr Zelensky have respected their commitments. In the end, the real defeat is that who is that of those who have no voice. The European Union was unable to promote the implementation of the Minsk agreements. On the contrary, it did not react when Ukraine was bombing its own population in the Donbass. Had it done so, Vladimir Putin would not have needed to react. Absent from the diplomatic phase, the EU distinguished itself by fueling the conflict. On February 27th, the Ukrainian government agreed to enter into negotiations with Russia. But a few hours later, the European Union voted a budget of 450 million euros to supply arms to the Ukraine, adding fuel to the fire. From then on, the Ukrainians felt that they did not need to reach an agreement. The resistance of the Azov militia in Mariupol even led to a boost of 500 million euros for weapons. In the Ukraine, with the blessing of the Western countries, those who are in favor of a negotiation have been eliminated. This is the case of Beniz Kiryev, K-I-R-E-Y-E-V, one of the Ukrainian negotiators assassinated on March 5th by the Ukrainian Secret Service, the SBU, because he was too favorable to Russia and was considered a traitor. The same fate befell Dmitry Venyanenko, former head of the SBU's main directorate for Kiev and its region, who was assassinated on March 10th because he was too favorable to an agreement with Russia. He was shot by the Marotvorets, or Peacemaker Militia. This militia is associated with the Marotvorets website, which lists the, quote, enemies of Ukraine, unquote, with their personal data, addresses, and telephone numbers so that they can be harassed or even eliminated, a practice that is punishable in many countries, but not in Ukraine. The UN and some European countries have demanded the closure of this site that is refused by the Rava. The Rava is the Ukrainian parliament. In the end, the price will be high, but Vladimir Putin will likely achieve the goals he set for himself. His ties with Beijing have solidified. China is emerging as a mediator in the conflict, while Switzerland is joining the list of Russia's enemies. The Americans have to ask Venezuela 
and Iran for oil to get, up the, to get out of the energy impasse they have put themselves in. Juan Guaido is leaving the scene for good, and the U.S. has to piteously backtrack on the sanctions imposed on its enemies. Western ministers who seek to collapse the Russian economy and make the Russian people suffer, or even call for the assassination of Putin, show, even if they have partially reversed the form of their words, but not the substance, that our leaders are no better than those we hate. For sanctioning Russian athletes in the Paralympic Games or Russian artists has nothing to do with fighting Putin. Thus, in doing this, we implicitly recognize that Russia is a democracy since we consider that the Russian people are responsible for the war. If this is not the case, then why do we seek to punish a whole population for the fault of one? Let us remember that collective punishment is forbidden by the Geneva Conventions. The lesson to be learned from this conflict is our sense of variable geometric humanity. If we cared so much about peace and the Ukraine, why didn't we encourage the Ukraine to respect the agreements it had signed and that the members of the Security Council, the UN Security Council, had approved? The integrity of the media is measured by their willingness to work within the terms of the Munich Charter. They succeeded in propagating hatred of the Chinese during the COVID crisis, and their polarized message leads to the same effects against the Russians. Journalism is becoming more and more unprofessional and more and more militant. As Goethe said, quote, the greater the light, the darker the shadow, unquote. The more the sanctions against Russia are disproportionate, the more the cases where we have done nothing highlight our racism and our civility. One more time. The more the sanctions against Russia are disproportionate, the more the cases where we have done nothing highlight our racism and our servility. Why have no Western politicians reacted to the strikes against the civilian population of Donbass for eight years? Because, finally, what makes the conflict in Ukraine more blameworthy than the war in Iraq, Afghanistan, or Libya? What sanctions have we adopted against those who deliberately lied to the international community in order to wage unjust, unjustified, and murderous wars? Have we sought to, quote, make the American people suffer, unquote, for lying to us because they are a democracy before the war in Iraq? Have we adopted a single sanction against the countries, companies, or politicians who are supplying weapons to the conflict in Yemen, considered to be the worst humanitarian disaster in the world? Have we sanctioned the countries of the European Union that practice the most abject torture on their territory for the benefit of the United States' war on terror? To ask the question is to answer it, and the answer is not pretty. Well, no, indeed, and uh, there is a lot to contemplate here, Uh, not only the fundamental digression 
between the media and political narrative that is presented in this country at almost every level, and what Jacques Beau, again, an individual with impeccable credentials, is presenting here. In particular, the extent to which this conflict and its attendant coverage has basically resulted in a mass hysteria. Uh, it is that mass hysteria, combined with the, the institutionalized lying that I am afraid uh, may very well trap us into a series of events that uh, lead to what uh, took place at uh, in the run-up to World War I. Uh, the New York Times of May 1st of 2022, a Sunday, in the Western edition on page 12. As an interesting note, Mr. Lavrov's claim echoed the false assertions in Russian propaganda that its forces are liberating ethnic Russians and others in Ukraine from what President Vladimir V. v. Putin of Russia calls the openly neo-Nazi, unquote, Ukrainian government. Well, that, it is not a lie, and that is not Russian uh, propaganda. Uh, that photograph that I have put into numerous program descriptions of the celebration in Lvov, Ukraine, in the summer of 2018, of the 75th anniversary of the founding of the 14th Waffen-SS Division, the Galician Division exemplifies it. When you have uh, basically SS reenactors uh, standing at the pension with weapons and a Ukrainian honor, honor guard uh, parading behind them, paying uh, obeisance and uh, credit to them. That is about as openly Nazi as you get. I have noted in this series of programs that the war and its appendant coverage have served like the philosopher's stone is alleged to have served for the medieval alchemists. It could magically turn lead into gold. I have posited that the war and its appendant coverage has served a similar type of political and historical alchemy, and it is basically transforming the individuals and institutions of the West into something very much akin to the substance of the Ukrainian Institute of National Memory uh, that is presided over by Volodymyr Vyotrovich. It basically is uh, an Orwellian memory hole in which the history of Ukraine, Ukraine and World War II in particular, is stood on its head. Exemplifying that is uh, a development uh, that in, in which uh, Yahoo News is regularly featuring in their news feed uh, excerpts, articles from Ukrainska Pravda, that's capital U-K-R-A-Y-I-N-S-K-A Pravda, that is discussed in an article from Covert Action Magazine from May 12th of 2022 by Evan Reif, R-E-I-F. The, the article is titled, Army of Secret Propagandists in Ukraine Funded by U.S. to Win Western Hearts and Minds for NATO Policies. And about Ukrainska Pravda, it notes, <clears throat> not related to the original Pravda, this was founded in 2000 by Georgi Gongazi, 
G-O-N-G-A-D-Z-E, a Georgian right-wing terrorist. One of the most popular news outlets in Ukraine, they now have nearly one million followers on Twitter. As is fitting for their history, they are unbelievably far-right. Indeed, the site has an entire section dedicated to historical revisionism. They worship Stefan Bombera and the OUN, alternate between denying and justifying genocide, and they defend the Galician SS division, war criminals responsible for many atrocities. I'm still surprised from time to time how brazen the Ukrainian far-right can be in this country which the press tells us has no Nazi problem. Ukrenska Pravda's executive director, Andrei Boborikin, B-O-B-O-R-Y-K-I-N, works for CORE, that's a U.S.-funded uh, media project in Ukraine. The editor-in-chief, Andrei's wife, Sevgil Musayeva, got somewhat famous back during the Maidan coup for, funding, for founding Crimea SOS, an NGO founded with National Endowment for Democracy Cash, working for the return of Crimea to Ukrainian control, mostly by offering what they call verified information, unquote, but given their funding, is likely anything but. And so again, that OUNB oriented publication, the Ukrainska Pravda, and now featured regularly on Yahoo News, exemplifies the uh, political and historical alchemy in which uh, the individuals and institutions in this country and the West in general are being transformed into a substance that is at one with the fabric of the Ukrainian Institute for National Memory. I guess you could say that uh, the individuals and institutions in the West uh, have their heads stuck securely in their Azovs. Uh, speaking of which, uh, the sanitization and even glorification of the Azov combatants, by no, mean, by no means the only, or in my opinion, even the most important Nazi-slash-fascist manifestation in Ukraine, but certainly the one that has received the most publicity, uh, that is being effectively not only sanitized, but being marketed in a heroic and humanitarian context. Uh, Reuters.com's website of May 14th of 2022 features the following. Ukrainian band makes plea for Mariupol at Eurovision final. Ukraine's Kalush Orchestra, that's K-A-L-U-S-H, on Saturday made a plea for the city of Mariupol and its Azov stall plant at the end of their appearance in the Eurovision Song Contest. Please help Ukraine, Mariupol, help Avastol right now, lead singer Ole Pshuk, P-S-I-U-K, shouted from the front of the stage in the Italian city of Turin after the band performed its song, Stefania. Russian forces have been constantly bombarding the steelworks in the southern part of Mariupol, the last bastion of hundreds of Ukrainian defenders in a city almost completely controlled by Russia after more than two months of a siege. 
Uh, no mention here of what the Azov Battalion is or uh, the fact that they basically are what has been bottled up in the uh, tunnels beneath the Azov stall plant. There have been uh, many rumors and quite a bit of attendant, even at chap, uh, chatter, uh, about allegations of NATO military and security personnel uh, being in those tunnels along with the Azov people and uh, some of them uh, apparently allegedly high-ranking NATO officers having allegedly been taken into custody along with the Azov uh, combatants. Uh, if, in fact, there is any substance to those rumors, I think it is highly unlikely we will ever hear about it, or at least if we do, it will be modified, limited hangout. It will probably simply be dismissed as Russian propaganda slash lies. It, it will, however, uh, be interesting. And again, I wonder to what extent the West's lies about Ukraine are going to wind up imprisoning its philosophy, because it does not appear from what I can determine, although I find the lack of credible battlefield reportage deeply frustrating, it does not appear to me that Ukraine is winning or even has a chance of doing so. Uh, again, I think Jacques Beau's analysis is accurate. We're going to uh, supplement that in our next program. But if, if the West is saying that Ukraine either is winning or can win when they uh, aren't and apparently can't, where does that lead? Does that lead to the West getting directly involved, uh, manning the weapons systems they are sending to Ukraine? I don't know, but I am scared. Along with the fact of the West having its head collectively stuck up its Azovs, uh, the New York Times of Wednesday, May 11th of 2022, featured an article by Maria Varenikova, V-A-R-E-N-I-K-O-V, and Mark Santora, on the last breath, wives seek mercy from Mariupol troops. And this is about two wives of, Mari- of, of Azov combatants, or at least Azov stall combatants. One is Yulia Fedoshuk, and the other is Katerina Prokopenko. Uh, Katerina Prokopenko says her, uh, is the wife, her husband, Lieutenant Colonel Bemis, Pokopenko, the commander of the now combined forces in the bunkers, tries to remain strong on their calls, but she can hear the change in his voice as the days pass. Uh, the next day there was an article about these uh, women appealing to the Pope uh, and uh, calling for mercy for their husbands. Uh, Denise Pokopenko, or Dennis, uh, is the husband of one of those women. He is also the commander of the Azov uh, combatants. Uh, we mentioned him briefly in an article from the Gray Zone of March 18th of 2022 by Max Blumenthal. Was bombing of Mariupol fever staged by Ukrainian Azov extremists to trigger NATO intervention? Uh, excerpting on March 7th, an Azov battalion commander named Denise Pokopenko appeared on camera from Mariupol with an urgent message published on Azov's official YouTube channel and delivered in English over the sound of occasional artillery launches. Pokopenko declared that the Russian military was carrying out a genocide, unquote, against the population of Mariupol, which happens to be 40% ethnic Russian. Pokopenko 
then demanded that Western nations, quote, create a no-fly zone over Ukraine, supported with the modern weapons, unquote. It was clear from Prokopenko's plea that Azov's position was going more dire by the day. Well, what exactly uh, Demis Prokopenko decides to divulge to the Russians uh, remains to be seen, because he apparently will become a uh, captive. Uh, by the way, the article about the Pope's, um, the intercession of the wise on the Pope from the uh, New York Times Western Edition Thursday, May 12th of 2022 on page A9 by Elisabetta Provolebo, Pope meets with Ukrainian soldiers' wives. The same to wives. Now what I found, well, again, I would say that the, in the West, the individuals and institutions have their heads stuck up their Azovs, and I find the sanitization of coverage of the Azov uh, military formations, where now they're heroes and anti-Russian this and anti-Russian that, to be altogether hypocritical. And I think a very valid measure of that hypocrisy made itself uh, emphatically felt this past week, uh, specifically on May 14th with the shooting in Buffalo, and uh, that was uh, apparently uh, committed by a young man who was uh, under the influence of uh, Peyton S. Gendron, G-E-N-B-R-O-N, and he was apparently under the influence not only of white supremacist and Nazi propaganda and imagery, but specifically was of the same fabric as the Azov Battalion. In an article in the New York Times of Alan by Alan Foyer, F-E-U-E-R, how shooting suspects' racist writings reveal links to other attacks. Skipping down, we read, Neo-Nazi tropes. At one point in his post, the Buffalo suspect asks himself the broadest question possible. What do you want? Unquote. He answered with a 14-word sentence, it is a common slogan among neo-Nazi groups and argues for the preservation of the white race and its children. That sentence, known in far-right circles as the 14 words, unquote, was coined by David Lane, a member of a far-right group known as The Order. He, by the way, was driving the getaway car in the assassination of Denver talk show host Alan Byrd. Continuing, David Lane was... The 14 words embodies the central white supremacist tenet that white people will not survive unless immediate action is taken. The suspect's use of the 14 words is not the only time he makes reference to neo-Nazism in his writing. The first page of the work is emblazoned with a the first page of the work is emblazoned with a symbol called the Sonnenrad or Sunwheel. The Sonnenrad, S-O-M-N-E-M-R-A-B, is an ancient European moon that, like the swastika, was appropriated by the Nazis to embody their ideal vision of an Aryan identity. Well, the uh, the Sunwheel or Sonnenrad is part of the Azov Battalion's symbol, and the 14 words was the titular element 
for the C-14 or Combat 14 militia, that is the militia of the Svoboda organization that has police powers in 21 different Ukrainian cities, along with the Azov Battalion's National Prizhina militia. Again, this is a, a major auxiliary, auxiliary Ukrainian police formation that is named Combat 14 after the 14 words of David Lane, or minted by David Lane, that was uh, one of the things that uh, Peyton Zimbrin, the alleged shooter in Buffalo, had in his manifesto. He also apparently had the number 14 written on his rifle. He also had the sun wheel and is alleged to have been influenced by the actions of Brenton Tarrant in Christchurch, New Zealand, some a short time ago. And as we looked at in For the Record 1073, uh, Brenton Parent, according to the Sufam Center, had traveled to Ukraine and may very well have been networking with the Azov Battalion. So when we see the Combat 14 militia, named after the 14 words, that is the auxiliary Ukrainian police organization that is a subsidiary of the Svoboda organization. We should remember that not only was the Svoboda organization heavily involved with the first provisional government post-Maidan, but Andrei Parably, the founder of what became Svoboda, was the captain of the Maidan and also centrally involved in the Orange Coup, uh, Orange Revolution of 2004 that brought Viktor Yushchenko to power in the first real infusion of OUNB politics into Ukraine. And as we looked at a few weeks ago in 1237, 1238-1239, Andre Parably was networking almost hourly with U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine Jeffrey Pyatt, that according to then U.S. Vice President Joe Biden. You don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure out that means that Biden himself was deeply involved in that mix, and it was Biden who was in charge as Vice President and obviously as President of U.S. relations with Ukraine. So when Biden condemns uh, what Zhenbin, uh allegedly did, he hasn't been convicted, uh, and calls it uh, unacceptable. What, what the words he used, that is consummately hypocritical, because what Peyton Zhenbin was referencing is what the U.S. has been manifesting in Ukraine. It is consummate hypocrisy, and again, Joe Biden, like the other individuals and institutions in this country, has his head stuck up his ass off. This concludes for the record program number 1245. How many lies before you belong to the lies, part 18. This is being recorded on May 18th of 2022. On Dave Emery, have fun. <laughs>